0: Since the church began at Pentecost some 1900 years ago, the prophecies of a coming Antichrist have just sort of captured the fascination of so many. We're told in Scripture that the coming time of tribulation, when the wrath of God is poured out upon the earth during seven years of horror and cataclysmic disasters, one after another, that seven year period which is meant to not only judge the world but prepare Israel as a nation to receive Christ who returns to set up his kingdom. It's also a a time in which Satan is allowed to carry out his evil agenda in and through the person of the Antichrist whom he will personally inhabit. This particular person, the Antichrist, is going to be uniquely and personally inhabited by Satan himself and the Antichrist is going to revive the Roman Empire of old he's going to rebuild Babylon to its former greatness he's gonna deceive nations and untold millions of people into believing that he is the incarnation of God on earth he is the other Christ the real Christ the Antichrist he will attempt to wipe Israel out thus nullifying the potential fulfillment of a literal kingdom on earth as Christ sits upon David's throne. The Antichrist will fail and Jesus will succeed in case you haven't read ahead. But we're given a few clues about this coming world dictator. He's going to survive a mortal wound to the head. He'll rise to great political power. He'll be accepted by all of the major world religions including both Muslims and Jews, which will be nothing short of miraculous. Even the clue that the numerical equivalencies of the letters in his name will add up to 666. I've lived long enough now to hear all kinds of speculations. People wondered about leaders like Saddam Hussein. because Saddam was rebuilding Nebuchadnezzar's palace on its site, original site, and rebuilding Babylon, which was his goal. Some believed, going all the way back to Adolf Hitler, even before then, Nero, Caligula, Napoleon. Church history is riddled with beliefs and many, many a sermon on and belief by leaders on who that person will be. I, I remember being warned that Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist because of his charisma and each of his three names. There were six letters in each name. Well, that's 666. Anybody can see that. Ronald Wilson Reagan. You remember he survived a mortal wound. wasn't to his head, but let's not be too picky about the location. He still needs to be the Antichrist. The clincher was the fact that when he retired, his home address was 666 St. Cloud Road. I mean, he really should have changed something about that. That did it. John F. Kennedy was considered by many to be the Antichrist, working supposedly as the puppet of the Pope, reviving the Roman Empire. The 1956 Democratic National Convention, he received 666 votes, and that did it. He probably should have dropped one or added one somehow. When Kennedy was shot in Dallas, many believed that his mortal wound would heal and he would come back to health and reveal who he was. Of course, he didn't. Prince Charles of Wales, a lot of speculation about him being the Antichrist. His name adds up to 666. It's rumored that his ancestors are linked to the Roman Empire of old. Of course it is. But he's also a vegetarian. And that explains why the Antichrist will stop daily sacrifices in the temple. And that explains that. Barack Obama now is generating interest. The day after his election, the daily... Pick three lottery number in Obama's home state of Illinois was 666. I mean, that's clear, isn't it? I mean, the lights come on whenever you think about that uh, <laughs> possible. I mean, there's an ancient Hebrew word for all that speculation. It's pronounced baloney. Remember, I've taught you that before. <laughs> According to the Apostle John, who coined the phrase Antichrist, he has some rather interesting things to say about the subject. And so let's rejoin our study in his first letter, 1 John, at verse 18 of chapter 2, where we left off. And that's what he's going to talk about. It's really difficult, by the way, for an expositor to outline John, and I'm going to prove that today, because we're going to go all over the map, and I'm going to give you a lot of points and subpoints if you're taking notes. But I want to give you two facts about this Antichrist. Fact number one. And then I'll get into the text. The term Antichrist is used specifically for the coming son of perdition. And that, by the way, is how Paul describes this world dictator. Perdition meaning lawlessness. He's over and above the law. Look at verse 18. As he introduces the subject, he gives an interesting phrase that I want to spend just a moment on. He says, children, it is the last hour. Fascinating. It's the last hour. Literally, these are the last days. Now, for the Bible students to understand this term, you need to understand that this last days began at the first coming of Christ, and it will end at his second coming. By the way, we we happen to have this incredible privilege of living in these last days. I mean, everybody sort of hangs their head over in the last days. What a great privilege. We're living in this epoch of time, this dispensation, you could call it, this administration. That's all it means. This epoch, this period, which began at, effectively, the Lord ascending, the church being created at Pentecost and... We have the privilege every day of being able to benefit by and grow by means of the revelation of this new testament. We don't have the shadows and the types and the mysteries that are fulfilled for us. We have wonderful revelation given to us by God. For in these last days, God has spoken to us through his Son, Hebrews 1 verse 2. Christ appeared in these last times... Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.20. And and here John reminds the church that we're living in the last hour. One New Testament Greek scholar translates this phrase from John's letter, my children, it is the final age. And that has suspense, that has anticipation. And that's where we're going to end today, our study, with that same sense, I trust. Now obviously the apostles John and Paul and Peter had no idea how long the last days would be. But if they thought it was the last hour back then, just how close are we now? Notice what John says next. Children, it's the last hour, and, and you've heard that Antichrist is coming. That really ought to be a capital A. By the way, John uses a singular noun He's pointing to an individual who is coming, the Antichrist. And you'd think that John would stop and just talk about that problem of the one who is coming. But what he does is really interesting. He goes on to warn the church that they've actually got some pretty big challenges facing them right now. So here's a second fact. Not only is the term Antichrist used specifically for the coming son of perdition, The term Antichrist is also used generally, generically for all those who deny the Son of God. Look at verse 18 again. Just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now, even right now, by the way, he's saying 1,900 years ago, even now, many Antichrists have appeared from this we know it is the last hour. In other words, there is this proliferation in this epoch of time of false teaching, false Christs, demonic deception. Now the word antichrist used generically simply a, simply a compound word, anti, meaning against, and Christos, or Christ, against Christ. You could also translate it instead of Christ. There will be those that will come along and say, you need to accept me rather than Christ. So they're not only against him, they are to be viewed as those that could be instead accepted instead of, of him. These antichrists are literally then nothing more than people who are opposed to Christ. They're against Christ. They're opposed to the things of Christ. They're opposed to the gospel of Christ. They'll say, let me give you this one instead of that one. They're opposed to the church of Christ. They may rise to cult leadership and some kind of prominence as false leaders and teachers who present themselves instead of Christ. And John kind of goes on a little bit of a diversion here is he gives us effectively four characteristics of this general use of all those who are against Christ. They're already effectively impacting his church and ministry, and it has continued to this day. So let me sort of follow his diversion and give you four facts about the spirit, this general attitude of Antichrist. Number one, and I've just mentioned it, but let me put it in principle form. They've actually been around since the beginning of the church. He says it, look at verse 18, if you didn't catch it. Even now, maybe you could circle that. Even now, many antichrists have made their appearance. They're not the antichrist, but they have the spirit of antichrist. They are anti-Christos. They oppose Christ. They oppose his truth. They oppose his church. It goes all the way back to the time of the apostles when this was apparent. That's why you have to the Galatian church, Paul delivering a warning of false teachers who had already begun to preach a different gospel. Galatians 1.9. Here, get rid of that one which we delivered. Use this one instead. Paul warned the believers in the Philippian church that they were in danger of imitating leaders who were actually enemies of the cross. Philippians three seventeen to 19, even the Colossian church was warned of internal heresies regarding ceremonialism and legalism. Colossians 2, 8 and 16, Paul warns Timothy, the pastor of the church in Ephesus, about those who will depart from the faith, 1 Timothy 4, 1, about those who have an outward show of, of godliness but no internal desire or power from God, 2 Timothy 3, 5. And Paul even used this current scandal. Everybody was talking about it. It had literally scandalized the early church. A leader named Demas had kind of finally come out and and, and made known his decision to reject the faith and pursue the world. So so Paul would identify him by name because everybody knew about it. And he would say, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. 2 Timothy 4.10. So all that to say this spirit of Antichrist is not a first century phenomenon. It carries all the way forward into the 21st century. They've been around since the beginning of the church. Secondly, they've even become some or many of them members of the church. Look at verse 19. They went out from us but they were not really of us. If they had really been of us, they would have remained with us. It's a fact of church history that false cults, anti-Christian religious systems in the world, even today, have founders and leaders and teachers who started out in a local church. It's also a fact of church history that these leaders do not necessarily openly deny the Bible, they just add more to it, which effectively replaces it. They're not people in the church with horns and tails, you know, so you can easily identify them. They don't have name tags that says, I'm an Antichrist and I've come to mislead you. That, that's not how they sign their name. They've professed to be Christians for a time. They've sung the hymns, choruses. They've Listened to the preaching of the word. They might have even put money in the offering plate. Went through the waters of baptism. They participated with the people of God for a time. They were among us, John writes. But they never really belonged to the people of God. And that's John's point here. He's not referring to Christians who've lost their salvation, if you could, when they left the church. He makes it clear they were never Christians to begin with. Now maybe you're wondering, does that mean if I skip church, you know, for a few Sundays I'm in trouble? You'd better believe it. (laughs) Oh wait, John doesn't say that. John isn't talking about what we refer to as backsliding. You know, that phrase for growing cold and in need of personal revival. We're in danger of that every day. John is talking about apostasy. He's talking about antichrists who eventually, though they have belonged to the church, say, I really don't believe any of that stuff after all. Now, in making this comment, John does imply, obviously, that the true believer has a desire for the assembly. And it's possible for that fervency and that commitment to grow cold, which is why the writer of Hebrews comes along and exhorts genuine believers, not unbelievers, but believers to not avoid the assembly. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. So if I ever meet somebody who tells me they're a Christian, you know, I'll at some point ask them, well, tell me, you know, what church do you belong to? And if they say to me, well, you know, I really don't go to church. I I've never really cared about the church all that much, and, you know, I can actually do without it. Well, I have concerns for them. I might not doubt their salvation or the genuineness of it, but I I certainly have concerns about their spiritual commitment and their growth. I mean, that'd be like me saying, I belong to a family. I've got a wife and, and, and children, but I'm never around them, and I rarely see them, and it really doesn't bother me, and, you know, I can do without them you'd have grave concerns for me. That would reveal my heart, wouldn't it? John is describing that kind of person, that antichrist spirit, who is against the gospel, against the church, against Christ, but they didn't start out that way. In fact, John informs us here they were actually members of the church at one time or another. But now thirdly, he tells us that they eventually abandon the fellowship of the church. Verse 19 Continues. Look there. They went out from us, but they were really not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. In other words, they left us. Now again, let me take a little left turn here and tell you. that Don't make the mistaken conclusion that John is telling us that as long as someone stays in the church, they're saved. That's not what he's saying. Church membership is not synonymous with being a Christian. Every local church is a mixed multitude. What John is simply saying is that those who are against Christ, Antichrist, they might start out by showing interest in the church, but they can't stand the church eventually over the long haul and leave it. In other words, if a church is going to glorify Christ, if a church is going to expound on the truth of Christ. If a church is dedicated to worshiping Christ, somebody who who comes into the church and really doesn't want to glorify, study or worship Christ will eventually say, "I don't really like this place. I need to find something else a little more, you know, comfortable." And this is what this is what's happening, especially in the American scene. We have what one author called in the church today, a tourist mentality. That is of grave concern. The author goes on to write, you enter that country as a tourist, you pay the fees, the airport, you get your passport stamped, exchange currencies for what works in that country, visit a museum or two, sample the cuisine, exchange pleasantries with the natives, purchase a little something to remind you of your visit, and then you're off to another city or country. Your heart wasn't changed in any significant way by your little visit, but it wasn't meant to be changed. You're a tourist. You're just visiting. You weren't planning on changing your citizenship. So here's the church, the author makes the analogy. On any given weekend, tourists can be found in the church. They pop in for an hour, enjoy the scenery, sing a few songs, listen to the natives talk, sample the local coffee, purchase a book or CD to remind them of their little visit, and then off they go. Their hearts were not changed in any significant way by their visit. But then again, they never intended to be changed. They are tourists. And then they're off the next Sunday. Perhaps it's a different locale, more accessible maybe more interesting, maybe shorter lines, perhaps less demands on their lives, and they'll visit that site for a little while until something else attracts their attention and they're off and running again. How do you view the church, by the way? Are you a tourist or a resident? John will add, basically in this warning, some encouragement to the flock. Every church experiences it, especially those that preach and teach the Word of God and call people the holy living. He adds some positive encouragement to the church that has lost these apostate members. Because whether you lose individuals because they're apostates or they just leave for other reasons, that hurts, doesn't it? The church body is pained by that. Not just those who leave over doctrine, but for whatever reason. And having pastored for 26 years, in fact, even now, a church this size, nearly every week, every other week, someone tells me they're moving out of town and they come up and they shake my hand. And I say, Well, praise God. And in my heart, I go, I'm going to miss you. It, it could be for anything. Some have told me, I found a new job. It's an hour away. I found a new home. It's, it's in a different city. I finally found a, a good preacher. He preaches longer messages. Yours are too short. Okay, I'm making that part up. All right. Hurts. But for whatever reason, the church body has to recover from that, that loss. And so in the case of these apostates, John is encouraging the flock. He writes in verse 19, the latter part, they went out so that, passive voice, it would be shown that they all are not of us. In other words, it's referring to God, God is actually revealing that they were not part of you. In other words, by God's grace, he removes them from the assembly without the church having to remove them, which is another unique, painful experience, right? And here's the encouragement. The encouragement implied is that they might have remained in the assembly longer than they should have and eventually brought great harm to the flock by their unbelieving, antichrist attitude. Although they might never say it that way, that's how they would conduct their business. And the lives that they would influence would be hurt, damaged, offended. John effectively says then, God is protecting the flock this way. I mean, you didn't know it. You would never have imagined in a million years that that person never believed But thank God they left on their own. Maybe they were convicted over something. Maybe they thought the church was too narrow or too intolerant. Or maybe they believed that the church took Scripture too seriously or whatever. And I've gotten letters on all of these issues. But now that they've left, the good news is they cannot influence the assembly, the beloved, the flock, in the wrong way and in the wrong direction. One author, pastor, called this loss to membership Blessed subtraction. Now again, let me make sure I cover this point. Is everyone who leaves the church to be considered an apostate? No. If we see someone wane or someone leave or disappear, are we to assume that, well, they're just not a Christian? No. Otherwise, the writer of Hebrews would, would again, not have encouraged those who genuinely believed in Christ to remain fervent in their commitment to the assembly, the accountability of shared partnership, love and good works which is provoked as you can no longer be isolated, but you are invested in a body. I've always loved that telling incident in the ministry of F.B. Meyer, the British pastor who pastored in London in the late 1800s who once visited one of his church members who had just kind of disappeared, stopped coming. Meyer was concerned and decided to visit him. He stopped in one cold night to see him and was invited in. He and this gentleman sat by the open fireplace to keep warm, and they talked about different subjects, just sort of small talk. Meyer had prayed that he would be able to communicate his concern to this wayward sheep, and the thought occurred to him. He simply reached for the tongs and took them and removed a hot coal from the bed of coals that were shimmering red hot there in the fireplace. And with his tongs, he grabbed just one of those coals and he pulled it forward and away from the fire and onto the hearth. And then without saying a word, just settled back in his chair. For several minutes, he and this man sat there watching, just watching the coals in the fireplace remain hot and bright red, and they watched this solitary coal grow dark and cold. Without Meyer saying a word, the silence was eventually broken by this man who obviously got the analogy, he looked over at his pastor and simply said, I'll be seeing you this Sunday. <laughs> and that's a backslider. In fact, John Phillips, another British expositor, said that someone who is wayward, if you dig into their heart sooner or later you will find Christ. And they are miserable in that state. You dig into the heart of an apostate and you will not find Christ. And they are happy that they have finally escaped. That's who John is talking about here. And notice the distinguishing marks. Even the digression of their abandonment of Christ. First, they've been around since the beginning of the church. Secondly, they've even joined the membership of the church, many of them. Thirdly, they, or many of them, eventually abandoned the fellowship of the church. And now, fourthly, and this is really clear, They ultimately reject the core doctrines of the church. Look down at verse 22. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? John would not be appreciated in this day and time. Who is a liar? Who is the liar? The one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. See, these antichrists deny that Jesus is the Christ, Christos, Christ. That's the Greek equivalent to Messiah. Both words mean anointed in the Greek language and in the Hebrew language. In the Old Testament, prophets were anointed to speak for God. Priests were anointed to offer sacrifices for the people of God. Kings were anointed to rule on behalf of God. So what does it mean when it says that Jesus is the Christ? What does that mean? It means that he's the last prophet who speaks for God. He's the last priest who offered sacrifices for the people, offering himself unto God the Father. And he's also the last and the coming king who will rule over the world. So to deny that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, means that you're denying that Jesus is God's final prophet, final priest, and coming king. So that's pretty serious. You're effectively saying, you know, those angels got it wrong. Somehow they picked up the wrong lyrics as they chanted in the sky to the shepherds below, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, the Lord, the Anointed One. John, by the way, is effectively, probably more than likely, attacking a heretical teacher named Serinthus. Serentis was teaching during the days of John that Jesus was just an ordinary man upon whom this Christ Spirit condescended, happened during his baptism. Remember that dove? That was the Christ Spirit. And the Christ Spirit empowered this normal man until he got crucified, and then the Christ left him, in fact, on a hillside, watched him die. John is more than likely attacking this heretical teacher directly, and he just about names him, although he doesn't, when he says with quite a bit of passion and a lot of righteous indignation, who is the liar out there but the guy who is saying that Jesus is not the Christ? And everybody knew who he was talking about. They not only deny that Jesus is the Christ, but watch this in verse 22. This is the Antichrist the one who denies the father and the son what's he saying well these two subpoints here are in effect what they're denying number 1 they deny the deity of Christ as the anointed messiah and then they deny the divine equality between God the father and God the son this is the antichrist the one who denies the father and the son that is the, the divine equality between God the Father and God the Son. And, and you know what? Your minds are probably already racing ahead of me because isn't this the very rejection that underpins so many false religions today? Denying the divine equality of Father and Son? I mean, just look around the globe. you got Islam, Judaism, minor cults like Mormonism and the Jehovah's Witnesses and on and on and on. They reject that. Jesus isn't the incarnation of God. He's just a normal man, uh, a normal prophet, and a long line of others, or whatever. So they reject that Jesus is equally divine with Father and, of course, with Spirit. And John makes it very clear. Did you notice? You can't have God the Father without God the Son. Look at verse 23. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. Right? Don't miss that. And the one who confesses the Son, that is, the one who agrees with what the Bible says about the son has the father also in other words you cannot belong to God the father if you reject God the son as the anointed sovereign Messiah prophet priest and king maybe you've noticed haven't you that there are a lot of people out there in the world who want God but do not want Jesus, right? They want to pretend, in fact, to worship the same God that you and I do. But they'll say to you, well, Stephen, the only real difference between us is your view of Jesus. And if you drop that, we'd get along really well. And they're right in many ways. But, but John is saying here, so there can't be any misunderstanding. You reject Jesus as divine Messiah, and you don't get God the Father either. So go ahead, as we've watched our world again, invite the world to pray to God. The latest tragedy of the bombing in Boston. Go ahead and invite the world to pray to God. The next natural disaster, we're going to be praying to God for you, the world will say. We all need to pray to God. Just don't pray in whose name. Jesus. Leave him on the curb. We're going to get along just fine if you leave him out. And John says if you leave him out, you don't get God the Father. Because God the Son and God the Father are equal in their divine essence. I'll never forget as a young pastor. In fact, this is about 25 years ago. I can still remember being invited to pray on the steps of the town hall. All the clergymen from the county were coming, and they had invited a few of us to pray. I guess I was the young guy, so I was the token minority there. I was 29 years old. I can remember getting up on the platform just in time. I was running late. Got there, and all the clergymen were there on the platform. And I walked in on their debate as to whether or not they should mention Jesus in their prayer, should they pray in Jesus' name. These were Protestant guys, most of them. I can still remember where I was standing. I can still remember the hair on the back of my neck standing up in anger. I didn't think this was the time to call down fire from heaven, or at least try it. I was tempted to try it. But I did make up my mind to do a couple of things. Number one, never to go back to that nonsense again. In fact, that's why we host a National Day of Prayer here and will again. Secondly, I decided that when it was my turn, I was going to mention Jesus as many times as I possibly could. And then when I got to the end of my prayer, I was going to say, in Jesus, I was going to draw that out, in Jesus' name, amen. So there'd be no question. And they never invited me back. Listen, you don't get God without Jesus. Jesus. For in Jesus dwells all the fullness of deity. Colossians chapter one. One day we're going to see not an invisible Father, not an invisible Spirit. We're going to see the fullness of deity embodied in Jesus Christ. So without Him, you don't have God. Before we leave this paragraph, let me make two applications, and they're going to have some subpoints too to further confuse you. But let me give you the first one. First, live with a sense of spiritual discernment. In other words, be wary of antichrists. They're proliferating. Be on the lookout for untruth. Anything that denies the full divine essence and glory of Christ is antichrist. And John provides two safeguards to make sure you stay on track. And let me give them to you. The first safeguard is the Holy Spirit. Go back up to verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. In other words, when it comes to the truth of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the equally divine, God the Son, John says you have received an anointing, a charisma, the Greek word, literally anointment. Figurally used to refer to the Holy Spirit. You have received the indwelling Holy Spirit and you know the truth because of that about Jesus Christ. You know that he was more than a moral man and a good teacher and a prophet or whatever. No, you know the truth about him. By the way, you notice in this text, John is not saying that only pastors, you know, or preachers, those with doctorates or those with seminary degrees or, you know, uh, televangelists or... Charismatic second, blessing believers, or mature believers. They get the blessing. They get the charisma. Though, no? did you notice in that text? You all, he's from the southern part of Galilee, you all, you all got it. It's impossible for you to be a believer without the Holy Spirit. So if anybody asks you, have you been anointed by the Holy Spirit, you can say, yes. And they'll say, I thought you went to Colonial. Then you can explain it to him How every Christian has received the charisma It's a safeguard against error And we'll talk about him later in this letter As he teaches us truth The second safeguard is not just the Holy Spirit The second safeguard is the Holy Scriptures Verse 21 I've not written to you There it is a reference to revealed divine Divinely inspired Scripture I've not written to you because you do not know the truth But because you do know it Because no lie is of the truth. Look down at verse 24. As for you, let that abide, that written word abide in you. Take up residency inside of you, which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning, that is the beginning of the church age, abides in you or takes up its residency in you, you you can rest assured you have taken up residency in the Son and in the Father. And so guess what the promise is to you? The promise is... Verse 25, eternal life. If the word which I've written to you finds a home in you, you've got a home with God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Back to the points of application. The first application I wanted to leave you was to live with a sense of discernment. Be wary of Antichrist. Secondly, live with a sense of spiritual anticipation. Be ready. Be ready. For Jesus Christ. Be ready. I mean, he began this whole discussion. Not with, oh, I'm so sorry for you people. How tough it must be. you got to slug through this. No. It's the last hour. Is that great or what? In the meantime, as we're waiting for Christ, be careful, be alert, be aware, but be ready. And listen, if the antichrists of our world are passionate to deny Christ, shouldn't we be passionate to reveal Christ? If the antichrists of our world are committed to ignoring the church, are we eager to be involved in the church, to worship in the assembly of the church? If the, if, if the antichrists are determined to dishonor the character of the Christ and to kick him to the curb, how passionate are we to say, no, 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 and bring him as it were up and honor him? If the Antichrist are committed to undermining the belief that Christ will one day return for his bride, are we equally committed in anticipation of his soon coming? And we live with the sense of maybe today. I close with this. Robbie Robbins was an Air Force pilot during the first Iraq war. He flew 300 missions. War ended. He was given a surprise permission to immediately pull his crew together and, ahead of most of the troops, fly directly back to the States in honor of his 300 missions. They flew across the ocean to Massachusetts and then had a long drive to western Pennsylvania. They drove all night, he and his buddies. And when his buddies dropped him off at his driveway around 7.30 that morning, there was a big banner across the garage door that said, Welcome home, Daddy. And he stood out there, and just for a moment he thought, How did they know? I didn't call ahead. Nobody called. None of my crew. In fact, we had not expected to leave so quickly, and here we are. And Robin's related in an interview. He said, When I walked into the house, the kids were just about dressed for school, and they screamed, Daddy! Came running to me. Susan, my wife, came running down the hall. She looked wonderful, hair fixed, wearing a crisp yellow dress. And I asked her, how did you know? How did you know? Through tears of joy, she responded, we didn't know. But once we'd heard the war was over, we knew you'd come back one of these days. And we knew you'd try to surprise us. (laughs) So we've been ready every day great theology may the Lord find us faithful, wary, alert in our discernment and anticipating his soon coming to gather his family to himself and in the meantime delighting as an assembly to worship as we have done again this hour the last prophet the last priest the coming king we began by singing of our Lord. In fact, I noticed how several songs related to that. He is Lord. He is Lord. Sing. He is Lord. He. Is